Well, I'm really honored and thrilled to be with you at Heritage Baptist Church for this special service. And we're going to look for the Lord to speak to our hearts about a very important matter. I appreciate Pastor Fong inviting me to be involved in these special services. And uh, I believe that the Lord is going to be using this particular sermon and this particular passage of Scripture to generate revival at the wonderful Heritage Baptist Church. Uh, we're going to turn right now to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, a very familiar story, but maybe the principle is not so familiar to us. We're going to read a good section of this familiar story and make an application that will help us. You know, the great need at this hour is for revival in the Christian churches. Now, we can think of many needs, needs for which we pray that God will intervene. Uh, the pestilence, that is the plague that has actually uh, attacked the world, the virus. We know about this. The Bible is very familiar with God using pestilence in the lives of human beings. And then the problem also that comes from the unrest in our country, many problems, generated actually by a revolutionary socialism of the Marxist kind. That's really what's behind all the fires and all the looting and all the damage and violence. Uh, so many problems, problems with the government and uh, the need for pastors to have wisdom in dealing with the government but no greater problem than the need for revival in the churches. Really, the fact is, the pestilence hit our country and our world at a time when the churches were not what we ought to be. Now, if you took your Bible and you read about Christianity in the book of John, then read about Christ in the book of John, and then you read about Christianity in the book of Acts, you wouldn't find very much to compare with what are called churches today. There's a great need for revival. Revival is the work of God whereby he lifts his people up to that level of faith and commitment where he can bless them like he said he would. And under the new covenant, God has said he would give us such great blessings and enable us to take the saving gospel to every creature in the world. Well, that's not really going on yet. And we are so distracted by being worried about these other things that Christians are having a hard time being Christians. But God will hear the prayer of his people for revival, always. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? My wife and I remember with great and fond memories our visits to Heritage Baptist Church and many of you that we had conversations with about revival. My heart is with you, although I'm not physically able to be with you. And I'm praying and very excited about tonight. So uh, God bless you. Thank you for being here. Now we're going to read from Daniel 5. We're going to go all the way down to verse 18. I may try to catch you up on the story, but I think you know the story. Verse 18, O thou king. Now the one speaking is Daniel, the prophet who wrote the book of Daniel. And he's speaking to King Belshazzar. O thou king. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Nebuchadnezzar was actually the grandfather of Belshazzar. As a matter of fact, archaeology and history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's son was Nabonidus and that Nabonidus' son was Belshazzar. 
And on this very fateful night, Belshazzar was the co-regent who was ruling over the empire of Babylon from Babylon in the absence of his father, okay? Uh, there's a reason for me to tell you about that. So Daniel is speaking to uh, the king, Belshazzar, because of a particular incident and a particular issue. And he reminds him, your grandfather, your father, he calls him, who is spoken of so often in the early part of the book of Daniel, God gave him all this honor and majesty and power. He was literally the ruler of the known world. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew. And whom he, uh, whom he would, he kept alive. In other words, your father or grandfather had the power of life and death over everybody in the world. And whom he would, he set up. And whom he would, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. And they took his glory from him. That's in Daniels 1, 2, 3, and 4. Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4. And he was driven from the sons of men. And his heart was made like the beast. He went out of his mind. He became mentally ill. You can read the story. And he was made like the beasts. And his dwelling was with the wild asses. And they fed him with grass like oxen for a period of time. He actually lived out there in the wilderness with the animals. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that, uh, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. Now, the reason Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of the world wasn't just his great leadership qualities or his ability to win battles and conquer nations. It was because God, for his own purposes, had decided to make this man ruler of the world and uh, turned everything over to him. But his pride really was an obstacle to him. So God humbled him, as we see in chapter 4 of Daniel. And, uh, and then this happened. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart. Though thou knewest all this, you grew up knowing the story of how your grandfather was humbled. But hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in, whom, in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified? Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and, his writing, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting.
Perez. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, this chapter was controversial for many years, and critics of the Bible would say archaeology gives us no evidence of any man named Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that is, Belshazzar being king. Uh, ancient history and archaeology says much about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but nothing about Belshazzar. But now archaeology dug up things that revealed to us what I told you at the beginning, that Belshazzar's son Nabonidus was often absent, and his son Belshazzar was the co-regent ruling the empire from Babylon in great periods of time, and specifically on the night that Babylon fell. And you know, uh, Belshazzar said, if anyone can interpret the handwriting on the wall, I will make him third ruler of the kingdom. And Bible readers for many years couldn't figure out why he said third ruler. Why doesn't he make him second to himself? Here was the reason. Belshazzar uh, was not the first ruler. He was the second. His father was the actual king. And the biggest reward he could give to anyone would be to make him third ruler in the kingdom. In that night, verse 30, was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. So this story is about the death of King Belshazzar and the fall of Babylon, the first great world empire. And that night, as we read the whole chapter, was a night of debauchery and sin and the handwriting on the wall and all kinds of iniquity was going on. And the king Belshazzar was shocked when he saw this hand appear and write on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. And he didn't know what the words meant, but he knew it was something terrible. And that the God who rules the universe was going to send them judgment of some kind. So he looked for someone to uh, interpret the words. And he got Daniel. That's what our story is about. And that night, the handwriting on the wall came, and then the kingdom of Babylon and the city itself fell to an army of Medes and Persians. Now, I want to just mention to you, this uh, event, the fall of the great empire of Babylon, is prophesied in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And if you study those two books, you'll be amazed, as I was, at the detail given about the fall of Babylon that night, the party and all kinds of things there in Isaiah and Jeremiah. The city, the capital of the known world, was surrounded by an army of the Medo-Persian Empire, our nation. And you know what history tells us? They redirected the river Euphrates. The big river was the river Euphrates that went through Babylon, which is in Iraq today. Okay, they redirected, dammed up the river so that the riverbed was dry and their army could come into the city, which was very securely walled, could come into the city and by surprise 
attack and conquer the city. That's what actually happened that night. A surprise conquest. And we're told the story from a different standpoint here. The arrogant king was killed in that night. Now, when we read the whole chapter, we find that there was much evil going on in the great feast uh, that evening. And, but there was one sin that brought the sudden judgment of that night. That's what I'm talking about this evening. There was one great sin that offended God. And God said, that's it. And the handwriting on the wall and the destruction of the city and the end of the empire and the death of the king. Now, what was the great offense that produced God, that provoked God to take this drastic action? Look at it. Verse 22. It was, thou hast not humbled thine heart, verse 22, like your father did. You did not humble your heart. Verse 23, but has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar, you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, verse 23, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways. Thou hast not glorified. That's at the end of verse 23. Now watch this. Everybody in the world, their life is in God's hands. Their life, their breath, and all their ways are in the hand of God. And the great offense that provoked God to take this drastic action was not glorifying God. You have not glorified your creator. That was the great offense. Not glorifying God? That's the worst sin? That's the great offense that will bring the judgment of God? Not glorifying God? Oh, Lord, help us to see the meaning of this passage and of this principle throughout the Bible. And not only help us to see the great offense of not glorifying you, but also let us see how our own pride offends you. And let us repent of it tonight. May there be a great revival in this great church, partially as a result of our humbling ourselves. That's our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's scary. God has everybody's life in their hands. Good people, bad people, wicked people, everybody in this city, their life is in his hands. And it's scary that God would actually take such drastic action against somebody because they didn't glorify God. Now, but it's happened again. This isn't the only time such a thing happened. You may want to read later this evening the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, especially verse 23, where another wicked king, Herod. Now, listen, there are several Herods in the New Testament. All of them are related to each other, and they're all bad. This is King Herod Agrippa I. He got up and he made an oration. People trying to get his favor said, what an oration. What an amazing orator he is. How eloquent. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. That's what they said. And he accepted this kind of praise. 
the praise that should only be given to God. And the Bible says that he was struck dead in a very terrible way. Do you remember that story? He was eaten up of worms from the inside. Wow, that's amazing. Quote, because he gave not God the glory. Now, because he gave not God the glory, Herod was not a godly man, and neither was Belshazzar. They were not aware that they were being so bad by not glorifying God. Matter of fact, an unsaved person like that might say, I never wanted to glorify God. How is it that God is so offended by me not glorifying him? I'm not a Christian. I've never told the Lord I want my life to glorify him. I have no interest in such a thing. How would it be that this was the great offense? Did you know that to glorify God is our duty as a human being? Whether we want to or not, it is our duty as a human being to glorify God. In the book of Genesis, we learned how it is that God created the heaven and the earth. But it isn't until the book of Revelation that we learn why he created the heaven and the earth. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it is said, For thy pleasure they are and were created. Do you know why you and I were created, each one of us? We were created to please God for thy pleasure. Now, it doesn't matter if you want to please God. Someone might say, I'm not one of you Christians. I've never told the Lord that I love him because I don't. I've never asked the Lord to help me please him because I don't care to please him. I've never one time even said, now, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want to do whatever you want me to do because I want to do what I want to do. But it doesn't matter. The fact is that a human being is a God-pleasing machine. That's what you are. You will never be fulfilled until you start pleasing God. That's the reason the Son of God died for you. That's the reason for God's redemption. That is to make it so that you can please your Creator. Because, friends, you'll never be fulfilled until you are able to fulfill your purpose, which is to please God, to obey God. That's what you were made to do. You know, it's just logical <clears throat> that I uh, ought to worship and please my Creator. He made me. Revelation 4, thou art worthy. Thou hast created all things. For thy pleasure they are and were created. And the idea that I should please God and that I should worship God is simply logical. Unless you deny that there is a God. But if there is a God, my friend, it would be the duty of a human being to worship him, surely. But you know what? The Bible shocks us by telling us that the ruler of the universe, our creator, Jehovah God, not only wants us to please him and worship him, he wants us to love him. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. The Lord Jesus Christ said that's the first and great commandment. The most basic principle of man's relationship to God is that God wants us to love him of all things. Now, you know what? I have worked in different places, and I want to obey my boss. I want to please my boss. 
But friends, I never, never thought that I was supposed to love my boss. What if I was told the president of the country company wants to know what you think of him? He wants to know if you love him. Well, I'd be surprised at such a thing. But friends, that's who God is. The God who made us wants us to please him, to worship him, and to love him. And a part of pleasing God is to glorify him. Matter of fact, to glorify God is the great key. The great key to success, the great key to happiness. It is the great key to glorify God. Uh, this is awful to say it this way, but this is the meaning of it, to make him look good. God is good. But if my life will make it so that people will think more of God, don't you remember the word Jesus Christ told his would-be followers that we should be the light of the world and uh, that we should obey our God, that, uh, that people would be able to glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Remember that passage in the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, that's the key. But my friend, not only is glorifying God the key, glorifying, not glorifying God is the great offense. It's the great offense. It's the one that brought God to this drastic action, destroying the first great world empire and the great city of Babylon and destroying this king on one night. Now, if you go back to the first part of Daniel chapter 5, I won't stay here long, but I want you to see this. You can see what was going on. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords. And we're told from history that this was not that unusual, that a great king would uh, have a big party for as many as a thousand of his lords. And they drank wine before the thousand. Now, it says he drank wine before the thousand. That would mean, and oftentimes, the banquet was set up this way so that everybody could see the king's table and could see the king. So he was up there drinking wine before the thousand lords. <clears throat> Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. In the first chapter of the book of Daniel, we're reminded of that incident where Nebuchadnezzar, who was the crown prince and the leader of the army, brought the Babylonian army to Jerusalem, conquered the city, destroyed the city, and destroyed the temple of God. And they took the furniture and the vessels out of the temple of God and brought them back to their capital city of Babylon. Among them were gold and silver vessels. And now on this special occasion, arrogant King Belshazzar orders that the gold and silver vessels that had been taken from the temple of Jehovah should be brought out to the people and that they would start drinking out of these holy vessels. That the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold, of silver, 
of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now watch this. In the same hour came forth the fingers of a man's hand. Imagine this. And rode over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And that was something that stunned the king. Then the king's countenance, his face was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. He was aware somehow that he had offended the deity. And now something shocking was taking place. He didn't know the meaning. Now the words were in his language. Mene, mene, take out you for sin. They were in his language. But he didn't know the symbolic meaning of those words. But he had an idea. It was not good news because of their sins. And what were their sins that night? Okay, here's what they were. Intoxication. Now I know Christian people today who don't think there's anything wrong with having a little glass of wine. Matter of fact, they like to uh, criticize uh, fundamental Christians of the past because they would not drink alcoholic beverages. But friends, that is an issue in the Bible, intoxication. Somebody I've heard people say, you know what, in the Bible, we're not supposed to get drunk, but there's nothing wrong with drinking wine. Can I tell you that in the first chapter of the book of Daniel, this issue comes up? Do you remember that story where Daniel and his friends who had been taken captive and were now trained to be in the Babylonian government, that they were ordered to eat the king's food that came from his kitchen and to drink the king's wine? But Daniel and his friends would not be defiled by the king's meat or by the wine which he drank would not drink the wine. It was an issue back in Daniel chapter 1. Now, someone says, the Bible never says you can't drink wine. Oh, I think you better check that out. Look at the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, chapter 23. Book of Proverbs says that a wise man will not drink wine. Also, the last chapter of uh, the book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is understanding what God really wants. The principles uh, that are the basis of life are taught in wisdom books like uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And you know what? A wise man will not drink wine. Will not drink wine. Because at the last it stings like an adder. And although at the first it might not do its damage, at the last, as you get intoxicated and then as you get uh, addicted, uh, it'll destroy your life. That's what we're taught. And the Bible teaches that Daniel was a wise man. Now, there was not a prohibition amendment to the laws of Israel given in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jews were allowed to, to drink wine and strong drink, and uh, that was there. It wasn't against the law. But the wisdom books taught that a wise man wouldn't do that. Someone who fully understands the plan of God for his life understands that a man is not at his best when he's intoxicated. You may want to argue 
The Bible doesn't speak against drinking. It speaks against drunkenness. But friends, I want to tell you something. The question is not, uh, are you drunk? The question is, how drunk are you? Ask a policeman. He will tell you there are effects on the mind and actions of a person by any ingestion of alcohol. See, a lot of accidents are caused by drinking drivers who are not legally drunk. And a lot of crimes put people in jail that were committed under the influence of alcohol, although you might not say that they were actually drunk. Drinking does not make you better. Alcoholic beverages do not have vitamins and minerals of any significant amount. No, they're not good for you. What they do is they, uh, uh, they destroy a lot of your inhibitions. They lower your ability to judge. It was an awful thing, an awful thing. And that's what they did that night. They took the holy vessels from the holy temple in Jerusalem, and they drank and got drunk using the silver and gold vessels that were devoted to the service of God. And intoxication was and is an issue. And no Christian should be drinking alcoholic beverages. Now, somebody there is arguing with me from that verse in Timothy, where Timothy is told that he should take a little wine for his stomach's sake and for his oft infirmities. In other words, alcohol for medicinal purposes. But have you ever stopped to think this? The practice of the Christians was not to drink alcoholic beverages, so much so that Timothy, a servant of God, was not drinking even a little wine, except that he was given permission by a divinely inspired apostle. Now, so the sins that night included intoxication, disrespect of God by using these vessels and not respecting him, which is an, as, an issue in chapters 2 and 3, where the true God is not recognized, the true God is not worshipped, and actually Nebuchadnezzar the king is brought to understand that the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the only true God and must be respected. He is the most high God. And then the other thing that night was pride. And there was so much going on that evening about pride in Daniel chapter 4. And I've spoken of Daniel 1, 2, 3, and 4. And the issues of intoxication, disrespect of the true God, and human pride. Friends, uh, the pride one was the big one. That was the great offense that brought down the empire of Babylon, that destroyed the city of Babylon, and that brought Belshazzar the king to his death. Human pride. Now let me make these points in the little time that I've got left. Number one, God is offended by human pride. No any doubt, no doubt about it. And nothing in the world offends God as much as human pride. When a man lifts himself up, uh, then God is always offended. The principle is taught like in James chapter 4 and verse 6. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Every time a man is lifted up in pride, God will resist him. God will work against him. 
If the man is a man after God's own heart that God has blessed before, God will stop blessing him and start resisting, start resisting him because of his pride. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, you can read it later, it basically says the same thing, that we ought to humble ourselves before each other and before God, and that we ought not to be involved in or motivated by pride, and that God will resist pride, but that he'll give grace to the humble, and that he'll lift you up if you humble yourself before him. In Luke chapter 18, there is the famous parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And we remember that the publican at the temple is heard to pray, God be merciful to be a sinner. But the application of the parable made by Jesus Christ is this, that God is against pride, but that God will lift up a person who humbles himself. There's the rule. Here's what the rule is. If you're proud, if I'm proud, God will resist us. If I'll humble myself, God will give us grace. The greatest example of that principle is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as we are told in the second chapter of the book of Philippians. And let us, it says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And you know what the principle is? The way up is down. The way down is up. And the great example is Jesus Christ, who was God. But he humbled himself and became a man. He became a servant. And you know what? He became an obedient servant, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And going from such heights to such low depths brought him the blessing of being exalted so that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, God's offended by pride. Your pride, anybody's pride. And the way down is pride. And the way up is to humble yourself. Now, I want you to think about this. Pride can be a part of our life without, without, without us hardly even noticing it. Like our motives. Somebody can be in Christian work and be motivated by pride. And think so much of what people thought of that sermon, thought of that song, how people are impressed with your ministry. I'm telling you, even if it's Christian ministry, even if, even if it's something that God wants you to do, you can be motivated by pride. How many people you witness to? How many people you led to Christ? That is, how many more than other people? How big your bus route will grow to be? I hope it gets to be bigger than it ever was. But friends are going to tell you, if we're motivated by pride, God says, I'm against you. God resists the proud always, always always, every time. You know, when I was pastor of a country church in Michigan, I was their shepherd for 34 years. We had a Christian school, and you sure do get to know about people through a Christian school. And one thing I found out was this. Sometimes parents would become angry at the Christian school because they, their kid got in trouble. 
not just because of the trouble the child had gotten into with the school, but because of the damage it did to their reputation. Here's someone is known as an upright, good Christian in the church, and their son gets expelled or their daughter gets demerits. And I'll tell you what, we saw how angry and foolish people became as they're trying to protect their reputation. I already mentioned Philippians chapter 2. Do you remember this part of Philippians 2? Where it says about the Lord Jesus Christ that he made himself of no reputation. And you know what protecting our reputation is a form of pride. And being motivated by pride. Even though you may not have walked into church tonight thinking, you know, I'm the best Christian in the church. And Pastor Fong certainly is happy to have me at Heritage, and I'm better than other people. Very few of us really had those thoughts, but many of us are motivated by pride, even in Christian work, and are offended when our pride is somehow offended. Friends, but God is offended by human pride every time, every time, every time. And even in this matter of resistance, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This matter of resistance. Now, God is resisting you today. He is, if you are motivated by pride. That pride offends him like nothing else in the world. He killed kings because of their pride, because they refused to glorify him and insisted on it glorifying themselves. And friends, this is such a basic principle, it's going to work in your life. Some of you have had a really bad year. We've certainly all had an interesting year. Some of you have had a really bad year where it looked like every plan we made was turned upside down. And all kinds of obstacles were in the way. Did you know that may not have been the devil? That might have been God. And you know what? When pride motivates me, God is going to resist me. One of the ways in which we are motivated by pride is by resistance. Some of us who came to church tonight are in the act of resisting God. What do you mean? Telling God no. Now, when do people tell God no? Well, on Sunday. After a sermon, I believe that when the truth is taught and preached, that it calls for a decision. Pretty well every time. Calls for a decision. And uh, that would mean a call to repentance, which usually happens in what we call a public invitation, an altar call. Now, what do you do during the altar call? What's happening there? The most important thing is this. The truth has been taught. You know what's right. It is not an argument with a preacher. He has interpreted the passage correctly. Your duty is clear. Now you've got to decide. He gives an invitation where you can publicly decide. And that's what you ought to do. You ought to decide on God's side. Say yes to God. Say, God, you're right. I've been wrong. Repent and let God forgive you and have his way in your life. But some of us have not been doing that. And even though they don't, we don't do it out loud. During the invitation time, we tell God no. 
No to submission to authority. No to respect to our parents or our husband. No to tithing. No to asking someone's forgiveness and reconciling. No. No. And if it's not no, we're telling God, not now. Not now. I could do that later. After a few things get taken care of. No or not now. I'll tell you what, there isn't anything more proud than telling God no. Because when you tell God no, you know what you're saying. I know better. I know what it says in the Bible. But I know better. I know what I'm doing. That kind of resistance to God is the ultimate in pride. And God is offended always by human pride. Second thing I want to point out is this. Pride is the great obstacle to divine blessing. God, this is the way to put it, can't bless you in ways that he wants to bless you because of pride in your life. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have the Beatitudes. That's the beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, you remember that the first Beatitude was this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know what that's saying? Everything that God has, you can have if you're poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? Does it mean humble? But there's another beatitude that references humility. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Remember that? But now what is poor in spirit? It is humble, but it's a certain kind of humble. Poor means needy. Needy. If we were just talking about poor in the sense of poor, if I told you I was poor, it means I don't have anything. It means that I need a lot of things. It makes me a beggar. But if I'm spiritually poor, then the kingdom of God is open to me. Absolutely everything that God has is available to me if I'll be poor in spirit, if I'll be needy, if I will say, you know what, I need help. That opens the door. Matthew chapter 18 has an interesting story. I think that um, I would like you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 about the fact that pride is the great obstacle to divine blessing. Matthew chapter 18, uh, first verse. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself, as this little child, the same is greatest in the, king, in the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, excuse me. Now, he talks about entering the kingdom, and he talks about being greatest in the kingdom. These are issues mentioned more than once in the book of Matthew by Jesus. Entering the kingdom, or and being great in the kingdom. Now, I want to tell you something. God wants you to be saved. Jesus came so that you could enter the kingdom of God. 
have your sins forgiven and canceled so that you can be accepted by God. And when death comes, it'll be up and not down. But friends, I'm going to tell you something. You won't be saved unless you humble yourself. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He brought into their midst a little child. He said, here's your example of what it takes to be great. But he says, unless you become like a little child, you can't even enter the kingdom, let alone be great in the kingdom. Wow. And you know what? People are not saved because they're proud. Did you know it takes humbling yourself to get saved? If a person's going to be saved, they're going to have to admit that they're a sinner without excuse and that they're unable to save their own soul. I am a sinner without excuse. I have sinned. I have broken your law, Lord, knowingly, repeatedly, deliberately. There's no excuse for my sin. If I got justice, it wouldn't be heaven. It would be hell. Okay. And not only that, I can't do anything about it. I'm helpless and hopeless. And you know what? Until you get to that place, you won't be saved because you won't understand what Jesus came to do for you until you are saved, until you humble yourself to admit that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself so that you can put your faith in Jesus Christ to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And so pride is the obstacle that keeps us from Christ and salvation and the kingdom of heaven. That was what kept me a long time from being saved. I had gotten interested in it as a teenager in Christ and in Christianity and in the Bible. And I went for a long time uh, getting interested in the Bible, reading the Bible, but, and thinking I was a Christian. But you know what kept me from the new birth? For all those months, I still thought I was a good boy. My mother told me I was a good boy. I thought I was a good, upright person who kept the commandments of God. And it wasn't until the day that I admitted that I was a sinner and that I couldn't save myself, that I had broken God's law, and that I was fully deserving of God's judgment. It wasn't until that day that I came to Jesus Christ and let him do the saving. And friends, you can't be your own savior and have Jesus be your savior too. So you'll have to humble yourself as a little child before you can enter the kingdom of God. But not only that, <clears throat> you uh, won't be able to be great in the kingdom until you're humble yourself as a little child. So said Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 18. Now, did you know that God wants you to be great? In chapter 20 of the book of Matthew, we remember that two of the apostles and their mother came to Jesus with a request that they would be able to sit at the right hand and at his left hand in the kingdom of God, being great in the kingdom. And Jesus Christ did not rebuke them for that request. Did you know that Jesus Christ has never be rebuked anyone for wanting to be great? Did you know God's plan for our life is that we would be great, that we would be above the ordinary, that we would fulfill some great purpose? Great in the kingdom, rewarded, reigning with Christ. That's the plan of God for you. But you'll never get there till you humble yourself as a little child. That's right. That's what we call revival. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life 
and have it more abundantly. He came to give you life, eternal life. That's why he died for you and rose again so he could save your soul, so you could enter the kingdom. But he also came that we might have the abundant life and be fruitful and have a life that matters in this world. And friends, pride is the obstacle that will keep us from life and the abundant life, from revival. Don't you remember one of the great promises for revival is Second Chronicles 7, 14, which says this, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So many of the verses in the Bible about revival call for us first to humble ourselves. There's so many that do that, that after a while you get reading the Bible about revival and you think that God is saying this. You know what? If you would get off your high horse, I'd do something for you. And you know what? That usually is the problem. It's our pride. That's the obstacle. The obstacle to joy, the obstacle to fruitfulness, the obstacle to understanding the Bible, the obstacle to walking with God and having a life that matters is our pride. And it's as if God is saying, if you'll get off your high horse, I'll do something for you. Then the third thing, humility brings God's grace. Would you turn back to uh, James chapter 4? James chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to read you the verses that uh, tell us how to have a revival. And it's all about dealing with the obstacle of pride. James, find the New Testament book of James. And we'll go to chapter 4, which is the chapter that calls for revival. Hebrews, James, 4. Go all the way down, please, if you will, to uh, verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Therefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now there is the principle. God resists the proud. There are a lot of people in church today that God is resisting all the time. He's not answering your prayers. He's resisting you. He's not using you. He's resisting you. Because God always resists the proud. But he always gives grace to the humble. And you know what? If we would humble ourselves, God would give us the grace that will bring us what we call revival. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's what it says. You know, one of the trickiest things to try to do is humble yourself. How would you humble yourself tonight at Heritage Baptist Church? Would you have to stand up and beat your chest? Tell everybody what a rotten thing you are. Is that how you humble yourself? No, uh, humbling yourself is not thinking little of yourself. Humbling yourself is being honest about yourself. And here, James tells us how to humble yourself. God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble, the Bible says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourself means to let God have his way. Come under his authority. And you know how I can humble myself? By letting God have his way on the issue. You might say, what issue? 
Well, no, you answered the question. What issue? There's an issue between you and God where you have told God no. Or you have told him not now. What an ultimate form of pride that is to say that you know better. But friend, if you'll submit yourself to God tonight and say, dear God, you're right. I'm wrong. Have your own way. Forgive me. Wash me clean. And I'll do it your way. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now the resistance changes. Now it's not God resisting you. It's you resisting the devil successfully. Do you know what we call that? Revival. It's revival. Where you deal with the great obstacle, the great offense of your pride, by submitting to God about the issue that's between you and him. I don't know what your issue is, but you know what it is. I think if you'll ponder it just a moment, you know what it is that is the issue between you and God. Would you let's let God have his way? At the end of the sermon, will you tell God you're right, I'm wrong, forgive me, and have your own way, yield to him? That's the way to humble yourself in such a way that God's not resisting you anymore, but he's giving you grace, the kind of grace that will cause the devil to flee from you. Look at the next verse. Draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You know, once you humble yourself, the rest of revival is easy. Things that were virtually impossible for you to do spiritually now are not only not impossible, they are easy. They're not just possible, they are easy. Drawing nigh to God, making a deliberate effort to get back to God, seeking him until you find him. That's not hard once you humble yourself. And then what's involved in that is cleansing your hands, confessing your sins, purifying your hearts, dedicating your life. And some of us who found it so hard to confess our sins and to dedicate our life would find it easy if you dealt with the great offense, which is your pride. You know, somebody right now there sitting in the church ought to ask God, is it pride? Is that my problem? Is it pride? Well, if he tells you it is pride, well, then you decide to deal with it. If nobody else does tonight, deal with your pride, and it'll make the rest of revival easy. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He shall lift you up. Now that lifting up is revival. He'll lift you up from where you are to where you ought to be. Lift you up from being carnal to being spiritual. Lift you up from being unfruitful to being fruitful. Lift you up from loving the world to loving Jesus. He will lift you up, but the great obstacle, the great offense is pride. And the weeping and mourning, does that mean God wants us to cry? Well, I don't want to say no. The prophets often called the people to weep and mourn. And Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But no, it doesn't say tears. Here's what it's saying. It's saying that what we need to do is humble ourselves and mean it. Humble ourselves and then seek the face of God until we find him. We need to mean it. 
and oftentimes that will mean tears. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And you ought to do that tonight. You know, tonight is an important night like that night was for Belshazzar. And tonight we'll either walk out of here with God's favor or having God's offense, offended by our pride. Uh, maybe we're not offended by uh, the church isn't offended. Maybe Pastor Fong isn't offended. Maybe Rick Flanders not offended, but God's offended by your pride. I heard a preacher say, you're stinking pride. <laughs> but if we deal with the pride, you know what? We won't be offending him anymore. We'll have his favor. And tonight we can leave the church either with God's grace or God's judgment like Belshazzar. Because that's the big offense. It's human pride. Let's decide to deal with it right now. Let's bow our heads. Could we do that? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, what's the issue? Will you address it with God? Will you tell God that he's right and you're wrong? Will you ask for his forgiveness? And will you rededicate your life and ask God to give you the revival you need? If you will, I think it would be a great thing if you found a place to get on your knees right now. Lord, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Help us, Lord, to see the ugliness and offensiveness of our wicked pride. And help us to deal with it in such a way that you revive us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.